Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing. This is the special Q&A episode of Merchant of Venice. I am Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. I am Judith Sparky Roberts. Hey, we want to offer a very special welcome to Judith Sparky Roberts. Uh, A lot of you who listen probably heard her in the penultimate episode of Merchant of Venice. She and I kind of talked about a whole host of other things. If you did not hear that, go back and listen to it. Sparky is my original Shakespeare teacher, and I get a little bit intimidated when she's in the room because she's so sharp and she also expects the best. So we're all on our toes today. Right, Sparky? You forgot, we're all to, say, on our toes. You forgot to say she's so ridiculous. She's not so ridiculous. Oh. Well, I like I don't know, on occasion. Yeah, okay. I need some we'll find- I need some freedom. <laughs> <laughs> we extend you that freedom. Hey, welcome back, you guys. Glad to see it's all great of your to be here. faces. This is quite an assemblage of women, Tim. I know it is. A I know. circle of feminine glory. <laughs> it is a circle of feminine yes. glory. Well, it's appropriate <laughs> in a way for this, for this play. Very true. Since it, does ha- it, does have a, it does acknowledge the feminine outlook. Quite a bit. Even if it is cross-dressed as a man. Right. right. Oh, you know, Shakespeare. He's so ridiculous. <laughs> so listen, on the Q&A episodes, we get um, listeners to send us questions that we either did not cover during the regular podcast or they, you know, are asking us to go in a little bit more depth about something. So this first question that I've got is for Heidi and Sparky. And it's, it's kind of, it's something that we mentioned on the air And we want to go a little bit deeper. The question is from Amy McMunn. She says, Heidi, 
mentioned a word that means a test of worthiness. And I believe that word is something like bosonos. Can you help me with this? Asks Amy McMunn. Um, I want to hear both Heidi and Sparky talk about this, starting with you, Heidi, because um, both of you mentioned this on the air. Heidi, can you help us? Yeah, uh, the idea of the bosonos is a really common uh, kind of uh, literary technique used by Shakespeare for his male protagonist, particularly in the comedies, uh, in which the man has to display his worthiness to woo and win his lady love. Uh, And it's particularly important in The Merchant of Venice for a couple of reasons. One is we have a protagonist named Bassanio, uh, which I'm completely convinced comes from the idea of the bossinos, the test of worthiness, in which that's central to the love story for a couple of reasons. One is the transactional nature of the play itself. And I think it's particularly important for Bassanio and Portia because like many plays, but more so, which I think is pretty typical of The Merchant of Venice, like many of Shakespeare's comedies, but more so, um, we have a male protagonist, a, a lover trying to woo his lady love who is in many ways unworthy of her and has to rise up to be shown worthy. And so the Bassanos is front and center to their love story, I think, in a way that is unique to Merchant of Venice, even though it is a common Shakespearean device. Sparky. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I wonder if Amy's interested in the question of worthiness. Um, if, if she's, uh, asking, uh, I mean, does Bas- Bassanio have to measure up first physically mm. and then to prove his fidelity via Porsche's ring? I see why that might be a, a central idea. And maybe, uh, I had not, I wasn't able to find anything on Bassanio, so I'm glad to find out about that. Mm. Uh, I can see the symbolic relationship of the name to the character, the symbolic name, and Shakespeare does freely name characters for their certain traits or status. Um, also, maybe Bassano suggests bass or basso. That's what I thought, like a bass voice that conveys trust. Um, I have to admit, my heat-seeking curiosity is piqued by Emilia Bassano Lanier, Probably a friend of Will Shakespeare's, maybe a really good friend. Um, if he knew her at all, uh, as it suggested that he did, he would have been smart to know her better. Mm. Uh, she was a moralist and called a proto-feminist. She was the first English woman to proclaim herself a poet. And she published and sold her own work, starting with a booklet of her own poems. Um, Salve Deus Rex Eudiorum, I think it would be in the Latin. Uh, she, she had an overview of the court and a possible influence on Shakespeare, which gives the impression that maybe she was the dark lady of Shakespearean sonnets. But whether or not the rumors are true, it's easy to see how Shakespeare's imagination might have been captivated by her. And, well, it makes the etiology of the play so much richer. Yeah. For me, anyway. Yeah. She, uh, that title that she used is a strange title uh, because it has uh, overviews of the two religious uh, 
the, the religious spectrum, you might say. It's a strange title, but it's speculated that she may have been a converted Jew uh, from a family of converted Jews who were made safe only by the fact that they converted. So this was a thing back then. Mm, mm. Uh, she was the daughter of a musician in Henry VIII's court, and she became the mistress of Baron Hunsden, who was the queen's cousin and a patron of the arts, including, it is said, Shakespeare's productions. Now, today, she's dubbed a proto-feminist. Mm. Uh, if Amelia Lanyer is suggested in Merchant, then she's rather true to form, true to who she was. And this is what bolsters my idea that she may have been around the bard enough to inspire the character herself. Uh, I'm not an adherent of a school of thought about Amelia Bassano. I mean, there's a school of thought about probably every word. Everything. Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. <laughs> every right. theory about Shakespeare has a whole school of thought and fanatic followings. But I... Uh, uh, I sense her possible influence, especially yeah. related to references to Italian Jewish life, uh, speculating about her life and how she may have been the dark lady uh, and her names, family's names pop up in Shakespeare's Italian plays, which are numerous, mm. as you know. Uh, so whether or not the more spicy aspects are true, I think Shakespeare must have really respected Emilia Bassano Lanyer. And I like speculating she might have been the dark lady of the sonnets, but more importantly, she symbolized something to Will yeah. Shakespeare. Uh, there's an Amelia in Othello and in Winter's Tale, and her name, Bassano, sounds related to Bassanio, Amelia Bassano. I might have mispronounced it before, uh, but it's just a conjecture about Will's intent. And... It's clever, Shakespeare's device of using cross-dressing, uh, as he often does for a female who wants to express things that she can't in her ordinary garb mm -hmm. or as mm -hmm. her ordinary self. So Portia can demonstrate her superior feminine wiles in court by lecturing on compassion. Mm. Sparky, I got to tell you, while you were talking, I saw Sarah Jane's face lighting up. Um, mm. Sarah Jane, I want to know why. Because I've recently discovered Amelia Lanya, and she has written a poem about a place that is just down the road from here um, called Cookham. Really? And yeah, I was just amazed that she existed and that she was a contemporary of Shakespeare's. And I didn't know that was her middle name. And so this whole connection is just brilliant. And um, yeah, I... I think that sheds light on the place. Okay, so let me, let me just make sure that I understand this. This this woman is probably, if if Shakespeare does know her, and it sounds, according to what Sparky just said, like historically speaking, it's it sounds likely she would have been kind of like mm. hanging around the court mm. enough so that they would have like just bumped into each other potentially on some sort of a social occasion <laughs> and become friends. And possibly she has enough ties to the Italian Jewish community that she could be a real source of information about what that world is like for William Shakespeare and the writing of this play. Do I, do I have that right, Sarah Jane? Do I have that right, Sparky? I would have thought so because she was married off to a musician to cover up a sort of illegitimate pregnancy that... Um, 
she was thought to be having an affair with the Lord Chamberlain. Ah. So if she was involved with the musicians of the court, then surely she would have been in contact with Shakespeare, who was also creating court masks and writing plays that royalty went to see. Um, so yes, I, what, a, what an amazing poet. I would love mm. to have met. Well, the, mm. uh, the adherence in the school of thought <clears throat> that she was influential go much further. You're fine. Of course, no they, problem. she wrote all the plays. Uh, some of the oh, really? Really? That's that. like the big. Or, as you have just talked about, uh, she would have been around. So she would have been privy mm. to more secrets than Shakespeare himself and to the dynamics and uh, negotiations and interactions and values and strife within the mm. court and all kinds of governmental and political type matters. Uh, you know, I don't see how anybody really knows, uh, except that her writing, the little I've read of it is very different from his. I would not mm. automatically ascribe his plays to her, but she was a linguist and she knew a lot. And it's interesting that you brought up this, uh, well, the Italian connection for one thing, but also, um, there was this yeah. group of converts who still would have had an essence built in of Judaism or Jewish value so that even if they had to convert, there was something that was, you know, there's something being passed down through the bloodstream mm. that understands Jewishness. Yeah. Jewishness as such is not portrayed in this play particularly. Uh, it's looked at from the outside pretty much, but he does delve. And I thought it was interesting in the Lawrence Olivier version that at the very end, they play the morning prayer, a cantor in a temple singing the prayer for the dead, which goes along with that outcry, which one of you had mentioned that, or somebody who wrote in that is just uh, in that particular movie version is just heartrending. Mm -hmm. The direction of that scene was interesting too, because they waited until he was done. That outcry probably took him almost 30 seconds. That's unusual it, on stage to see people just stand there. <laughs> but that you know, that outcry and the sound of it and the prayer for the, the morning, the Kaddish it's called at the end um, are more Jewish <laughs> than anything that Lawrence Olivier really does in his interpretation. Uh, uh. The interpretation is wonderful for many reasons, but the Jewishness uh, he doesn't have, you know, he, he has some kind of an obscure accent. But there, uh, there are relative uh, uh, degrees of effectiveness of the different actors that I've seen in the movie versions. And uh, all of them grab me, you know, get me where I live. And some feel more authentic. Sparky, I want to um, introduce another question here from Sally Webb Eilerson. She, she is one of our listeners, and she mentioned... Um, as you just mentioned, seeing the Lawrence Olivier version and also seeing the Al Pacino version. So both Olivier and Pacino are both playing, uh, they're both playing the courtroom scene. It, here's what Sally Webb says. Um, 
I watched BBC Merchant with Laurence Olivier after watching Pacino. It was so different. I thought Olivier was so much colder, more formal, less sympathetic until the end of the scene. He stayed almost stoic during the verdict in enforced conversion. But after he left the stage, there was such a cry of despair and grief that it broke my heart. It was so mournful, so full of pain. I'll never forget it. So much more effective than if he'd broken on stage. So I, I want to play two clips. The first is Lawrence Olivier and the second is Al Pacino. I'm just going to hear them. Um, let's just hear them back to back. What dost thou say? I'm content. What do you say? I am just sometimes stunned, even though I've done lots of acting and seen how varied actors are in their choices. I'm stunned at how different these two great actors, Lawrence Olivier and Al Pacino, chose to play those few words. Olivier is... It's like an outburst. It's like an almost a volcanic explosion. And Pacino, you probably had to, I mean, if you're listening in your car, you probably had to turn the volume up to hear Pacino. It was so quiet and muted. Um, Are you talking about the, I am content? Yes, that is exactly right. Uh, I am content. Okay. Yeah. They play it complete opposite ways. Right. Um, Olivier, it's like a, almost a, a spasm. Yes, yes, a, a spasm. It's a great way of describing it. It's a great way of describing it. Um, let's shift gears to Portia, kind of the other strand in our play. If Shalak is one strand, the other major strand is Portia. Heidi, this is for you from Emily. What qualities in Portia do you think make her a unique Shakespearean heroine in the canon, in Shakespeare's canon, who is she the most similar to and why? Such a good question. I mean, Portia is one of the uh, one of the great female comedic uh, roles in Shakespeare. If you're a female actress, you definitely want to play Portia and you want to give the, uh, the quality of mercy is not strained speech. Uh, what I find very moving about Portia uh, is that she's she's not she's in a position that's not entirely comedic and in that way i think she 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 leans more towards some of the the later uh tragic comic tragic comic kind of heroines um the romance heroine somebody like hermione for example in the winter's tale that has this melancholy of uh to her and is grappling with deeper questions than just who am i gonna marry um it's she's but she still has that like whimsical delight and strength of character that you might find in a Rosalind uh, or a Viola um, from some of Shakespeare's high comedies. But there's something about Merchant and Portia in particular that 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 goes a little bit below the surface of just which guy am I going to marry? Um, that she's she's grappling with the question of 
justice and mercy, and she's offering, uh, she, she's being a judge. Uh, she's inhabiting a man's world with wisdom far beyond what would have been expected from a woman in Shakespeare's time. Um, she's crossing boundaries, the boundary crossing character uh, for the sake of the society, not just for herself. So she's looking beyond herself, um, which I, I love about her, but she's also just super funny. And I appreciated so much Sarah Jane's role uh, in in this comedy uh, and talking about it over these last few weeks, because it's always been Sarah Jane who like keeps reminding us like, this is a comedy. It's funny, guys. While we're, you know, off while I'm off waxing eloquent and about some kind of, you know, deep question. <laughs> Metaphysical. Yes, puzzling. like, but she's just hysterical. And so in that way, I, I even think, and I know that this is Shakespearean blasphemy at some level, I think she might be one of the fun, I think she might be funnier than Rosalind. So um, I'm, I, so I, I can't compare, she's almost incomparable. She's unique within the Shakespearean canon. Um, and mm. she, she kind of marries this depth of wisdom with this, you know, high comic romp. Sarah Jane, does she remind you of anyone? Portia? Similar to Heidi, um, I really thought more about her comic side when I thought about comparing her to other characters. And I thought a great double would be someone like Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing Mm. and the skirmish of wit that she's involved in with um, Benedict. And I thought they would be great doubles because Portia has this power of persuasion that she can persuade others. And Beatrice is almost impossible to persuade. Um, and, and I think they're similar in that they're so witty and sharp and quick thinking and able to hold their own in debates with men. Um, but then they're quite different in terms of their romantic attachments to, to the characters they end up marrying. Yeah. Because um, yeah. Beatrice has to be convinced that Benedict is for her and obviously Portia uh, has no question about Bassanio. It's it's right from the beginning. She's dropping him hints yeah. during the play to help make, make sure he makes the right choice. Mm. So I, I think that would make an excellent comparison and perhaps draw out some interesting shades of both of those characters. Sparky. Portia, well, I, I, I think, it, it, you know, she may not have got such a great match because Agreed. Bassanio doesn't <laughs> seem to have a depth or gravitas to be united mm. with her it must be a physical attraction. I mean, he's also been irresponsible with his money and, you know, what does she love <laughs> about him? It's not his mind. I like the, uh, the comparison with the other independent minded women in Shakespeare. And it brings again, the idea of uh, woman's independence, maybe being tied to, or freed by cross dressing. Um, mm. It, you can cross boundaries and um, like Rosalind does Ganymede and Viola Cesario and uh, any actors in modern day productions can dress in the other gender's clothes or any gender's clothes and be anybody. And that's really been true in the theater for all time. But that device of cross-dressing gives a woman character uh, freedom. She can be more forthright. She can express eloquence and confidence mixed with her womanliness, and it adds richness to the available chords in her music. So at that point in the action has a uh, profound duty, a job Mm. to do. 
I, I, I wanted to, to go back to uh, Emily's question. Question. Um, Let me read it again, Sparky. Yeah. What qualities in Portia make her a unique Shakespearean heroine? And in Shakespeare's canon, who is she most similar to and why? Oh, well, that, that kind of, I already, I was talking about the part of the question where she says uh, that uh, she likes the idea that, that, that the, two, the two versions that Emily... Before we go on that, to that, I really uh, wanted to ask Judy um, Sparky about one of the things she said about um, the, the cross-dressing that Portia does. Can I ask mm, you about mm. that before we go on to that? I, I, I wondered, do you think that's true for Portia? When she cross-dresses, does that really... How do you see it making her more free than when she's in Belmont? Because I've always seen it as if she steps down and puts on a lesser role, in a sense, and becomes kind of a member of the court. She's doing a job, whereas in Belmont, she's like the Queen of Heaven, essentially, and has control over all of the suitors coming and going. Um, So I really... Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that's true for Portia? That she's freer when she puts on male clothes. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, I assume so, because she's not recognized, <laughs> and in that context, she would not want to be recognized. Sarah Jane, you think there's something about she's kind of taking a lesser office? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. By by stepping into the court. Yeah, yeah. and she's constrained oh, I- by the relationships within the trial. She's playing a specific role. She's doing a job. She's she's taken on a disguise that is um, junior to her real status in Belmont. Mm. And um, I always saw her putting on male clothes as something she will deign to do in order to help um, Asanya, but not, it doesn't elevate her status or make her free. Oh, I see. Well, that's an interesting idea. Uh, she is... Very eloquent, mm. and uh, her her speech about "You see me, Lord Bassanio, where I, where I stand," mm. it shows that so beautifully. And I think the matching speech really is this, in the sense of showing her eloquence, and uh, that is her her mm. prime weapon, as well as, of course, her the sense of compassion that she's bringing to the proceedings, but her verbal acuity. Is, it's daunting, and almost in order to not be recognized, she'd have to be in a robe or some other costume. She's so unique in the way she expresses herself, but I don't know what the purpose. Yeah, I find she speaks quite freely, though, when she's dressed as a woman um, as well. So, yeah, I, I've just always seen her taking a step down yeah. to go into this really constrained, limited world of Venice to do a specific job, and then she goes back. Um, but I, I agree. In, in many plays, there is a sense that women gain a kind, female characters gain a kind of freedom from putting on male clothes. But I just, I haven't thought about that specifically for Portia. Well, I think well, to add another layer of complexity to it, wherever any of the characters go in this particular play, there's a bond, right? There's, there's this, there's, there's something that, that, uh, that they are bound to that keeps them from true freedom at some point. Um, or the maybe true freedom is the wrong kind of phrasing. But for example, and, and you can maybe help me get to the right phrasing here, Sarah Jane, because when she's in Belmont, she 
she is, so to speak, the queen of heaven. I like that phrase that you used mm-hmm. um, or title. Um, but she's also bound by her obligation to the father that she cannot marry whom she chooses, uh, but who chooses the right casket. And so there's there's a there's there's a constraint in Belmont, just as there is in, in Venice. It's just a different kind of constraint. And and everybody is bound to something, and then another character has through fidelity has to set them free, right? And and it's just this complexity of these various kinds of bonds um, and how they are set free in order to get to this satisfying ending is kind of the the unraveling of the play mm. yeah yeah i i think i've always viewed her as quite free when it comes to her bond that's imposed by her father because she is able to direct the suitors she doesn't want to marry morocco and she directs him to the wrong casket she knows which casket is the right one she tells bassanio the answer before he goes and chooses so she she is bound by the bond, but I think within that she's still free to direct the suitors and she gets the one she wants. Right. Using the weapons that Sparky pointed out, right? Her her yeah. her verbal acuity, mm-hmm. her her ability then to uh, uh you know, each each of the failed suitors is in a sense bound by his own failures mm-hmm. to see beyond himself, right? Because mm-hmm. you see Morocco um choosing according to his own limitations, right? And um and 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 getting then trapped by um the what the father has put in place actually to protect Portia and set her free mm-hmm. so that she can marry the right suitor. And so it the I don't think here, and again, this is a le- this is a hierarchical society. Uh, it doesn't see constraint as bondage the exactly. same way that we do in 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 modern day. That any kind of bond is bad, and we have to be free from it. That and and I think the message from Portia's father is. I love my daughter so much. I will protect her from the wrong suitor so that the right suitor will choose the right casket. And that is, you know, a man of virtue will choose this one, which is indeed what makes Bassanio worthy, even though he has been a failure in other ways. And so it's just, there's so many complexities to the bonds that are in place. Some of the bonds are bad bonds and some of the bonds end up being holy bonds that lead those who are bound to it to true freedom. That's really well put. Really well put. Thank you. Uh, Portia's dichotomy, though, I think she has to be a male in that room. Who's going to listen to a woman get up there? I mean, just for the reasons you described. I do agree with that. that I think that's true. Bound by the mores of the day, and that's a patriarchal society, period. Um, But I like uh, Sally's question about the idea of different versions of Portia's intent in the courtroom. She brought up the idea that uh, she thought it might be more interesting if Portia makes the discovery in the bond as she's reading it, that she might not really know her ending when she starts out, but then she discovers about the limitation between flesh and blood that there's no mention of blood. And she hits on that as her magic bullet, as it were, (laughs) of how to, uh, how to foil the bond. And she, uh, Sally lays out an idea of how that could be done. She said uh, all she got from her father was, or her uncle 
uh, was to read the bond and find a flaw in the bond and that way it could be reversed. Uh, and she, um, Sally suggests she starts nervous. Yeah. With the, with the mercy uh, speech, instead of coming in like with a commanding voice, knowing what she's going to do, as you're saying, Sparky, she kind of discovers it while she's actually in the courtroom. Right. And uh, so she says, uh, then she sees it. Uh, her realization happens on stage. She's thinking on her feet, uh, flesh, not one drop of blood. Um, I, I like that choice. I think her choice is, yeah. is really interesting. So uh, it, it's something to, to think about whether she goes in there 100% prepared or whether there's an element of spontaneity that actually uh, catalyzes that uh, result in the courtroom. Um, hey, you guys, I just thought of who Portia reminds me of. Do you know Isabella you from Measure from Measure? Huh. Yeah, like she takes kind of a prosecutorial role when she's with Angelo, who's kind of the the vice mayor for a time, and he's a pretty devious character, and he and he has the intention of um, putting Isabella's brother to death, and Isabella steps into his room and she acts in essence like a lawyer. Now she's not wearing the garb of a man; she's wearing the clothes of her convent. She's a nun, but she has that kind of eloquence that I think we see in the courtroom scene, especially uh, from Portia. And she rejects his ultimatum. Yeah. His ultimatum is either she becomes his sexual partner or he executes her right. brother with torture. Right. <laughs> and so that's no choice, but uh, she does talk back to him For when sure. he comes on to her really strongly and with a great sure. authority. She talks back, but she also doesn't see a way out. Um, I want to talk for a second about um, teaching this play to high school students. Could I answer the question we just oh, yeah. left behind? But the one about the, the way that that scene is directed where Portia's in the courtroom. And I'm sure Heidi would have something to say about this too, which is, um, okay, so if we're going to say... Um, that she stumbles upon the solution there on the stage, then I agree this makes her mental acuity extremely impressive. She is quick-witted. She thinks on her feet. But does it then not undermine all the other things we've said about her virtuous character? Because why would she venture into this courtroom not knowing that she would be able to help the case? That would be extremely risky and foolish. And... Um, mm. I think that her mastery from the beginning of, of the scene shows that she knows from the outset that she, she is able to deliver mercy and justice. And um, if we say that she simply stumbles upon this solution, then it, it's sort of like a trick or a near miss, and, and the play then kind of turns on this um, chance. And I what don't think fuse, that... Uh, what if we fuse the ideas? Go on. Uh, rather than her being surprised, she acts surprised yeah oh, like yeah she, she can certainly this, do that this verbiage here hmm you mm. know sort of thing yes as if discovering that um, that's definitely what she does tarry a little or something else yeah but it seems to you sarah jane like if she walks in not knowing what her game plan is why would she it do really it? undermines yeah. Yeah. don't they say about lawyers that they don't ask a question they don't know the answer to already right <laughs> in court and also, it seems like a break of, of 
her like her character seems to kind of wobble a little bit. Mm. Yeah, that's true. If she doesn't walk in knowing what her plan is. Mm. Heidi? Uh yeah, I mean I think <laughs> the whole the whole point of Shakespeare is that actors make choices, right? And they they portray something based on their own internal experience with the character. I think that with Portia though, it's um I think it's I think she's a stronger character if she is if she has a plan here for sure. Um because to to Sarah Jane's point about motivation, why would she just be there? She just like shows up to um and and lets lets the whole thing play out. Um I think that because of Shylock um and the the conflict between law and grace that we see embodied through his Jewishness of his character um and the the sense of exile uh that so many of the characters are at risk of and how much how much weight of reconciliation is on this particular scene. Um, that there is there that it there has to be some kind of reconciliatory trajectory going into there that there's some right. there's some voice of um uh of restoration that that has an ultimate plan a telos to the to this scene and 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 I think Portia plays that role here. Let's talk about um, teaching this this play or having um, maybe students perform this play. Sparky, let's just imagine you've got seniors in high school or freshmen, sophomores in college. This is a question from Lisa Looney. And, and they don't have much, if any, exposure to Shakespeare. Uh, is this the play? Do, would you start them on Merchant of Venice or... Would you have one or two other Shakespeare plays under their belt before you approached Merchant? Merchant of Venice is, uh, was written with a different idea behind it than we have today, but it does uh, approach some very relevant problems, particularly hating, prejudice, alienation, you know, tribalism, mm. uh, justice, the nature of justice. All of those things are really like in front of us right now. Hmm. However, as a first play or introduction to Shakespeare course, you might say, I thought about this a little bit and I thought for various reasons, I would um, maybe make an order of something like Twelfth Night First, Hmm. which does have a cross-dressing independent female in it. Uh, (laughs) Midsummer Night's Dream, which would break the uh mood uh break uh, break out all the uh, pull out all the stops fantasy um magic uh, uh miscalculations lovers mismatched and matched all this kind of thing fun stuff for high school and then uh maybe much ado which is a problem play uh, w- that has deception in it and it has hating in it, but it doesn't overwhelm you and it doesn't make you question your own values as much mm. as obviously Merchant of Venice does and has mm. even among us talking today. So I kind of would, I think, do an order something like that and then I'd hit them with this. 
Mm-hmm. And then they would just have no choice but to discuss everything because they'd be caught off guard in a way. The, the, the uh, presence of these issues in our present day life, I think, is what differentiates it in some ways from the others. Not yeah. that these issues have ever been gone. They've been there forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. You know, it's, right. it's this question of naming them, seeing them in his time frame. And then how do you feel about all this? You know? yeah. And then you're going to find out who in your class is Jewish. What do they think about the portrayal of Jewishness or Judaism in this play? Do they relate to it at all? I admit that for me, I mean, I'm only kind of basically Jewish, not really an observance or anything. But it does bring up feelings and questions. Yeah. And which are all in high yeah. school well worth talking about because you might have to Absolutely. Uh, have an avenue to addressing your own current events. Sarah Jane, uh, same question. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of teaching this play going in cold with 16 year old boys. And I remember having conversations about reverse circumcision, among other gruesome things that they were (laughs) quite um, fascinated by so um it went well but I was I was fortunate that the boys had studied at least one Shakespeare play before um so they would all have read slightly different ones probably and um they'd at least seen a couple so um it was still it was hard and certainly it's not a popular play to teach um Mm. but they really enjoyed learning um, about the context. They really enjoyed looking at the sources and seeing how Shakespeare had constructed um, a much more dramatic and tense story out of um, kind of older Italian stories. And um, it works really well, I think, alongside Othello, if you're looking at um, mm. matters of the Venetian state and how it treats foreigners and who is included and who is not. Um, that's very interesting. And then a, a slightly left field idea is that it works really well with Chaucer's The Merchant's Tale, where you have a mercantile view of what relationships are and what marriage is. And that is, although it's from, um, you know, the 1500s, um, you're looking at, sorry, the 1300s, you're, you're looking at very similar ideas that the merchant thinks that marriages are transactional. Venice tries to make relationships transactional. And then you have the uh, comparison of Belmont where that's not the case. Um, so I, I would try if possible to introduce the students to that Chaucer tale, which is really short and get them to, to think about what does it mean that a merchant is telling this story yeah. and what are the, mer- the mercantile concerns of the merchant of Venice? Yeah. Heidi. I wouldn't teach this play, uh, without some without a pretty firm grounding in Shakespeare I wouldn't teach it first I wouldn't teach it yeah I mean I teach it like 10th <laughs> what would you teach first Heidi? um I I I think I mean there's lots of options um, most people start with Julius Caesar or Romeo and Juliet those are good starts I think um not because they're less complex um they're not mm-hmm. like those are really rich plays. I'm teaching Romeo and Juliet right now. And man, it is just, it's a, it's a very rich play, but it, it, I think what Merchant does that is, is Merchant is going to 
kind of the foundational questions of what makes a society, right? And and Romeo and Juliet is asking questions from within that society, right? And I think that that is more conducive to the developmental uh experience of a high school of a high schooler um the question are romeo and juliet really in love right are that is uh that's an important interpretive question um that that is very rich what is the nature of love then what is the nature of naming things does a rose by any other name smell as sweet like these are the kinds of questions that uh the kinds of you know metaphysical philosophical theological questions that a uh What's it mean to be human? What's it mean to fall in love? Those kinds of things that a high schooler is really thinking about. It's more relevant to them than, say, you know, a mercantile society and the nature of law and grace. Because in some ways, we are uh, in teaching. We have to honor the student for what is um, what kinds of choices they're making in their real life, right? Because that's the whole point of reading. <laughs> is to be relevant to a real life. And I think that it's, uh, I, I think kind of starting, mm. I, I don't think that high school is, that the traditional American high school gets it wrong with starting with some of those plays before diving into the complexity and nuance of some of these more problem plays that we get. I would never teach, say, measure for measure to a ninth grader if I could mm-hmm. teach them Romeo and Juliet. I think the, the yeah. relevant issues probably change, cultural issues change over time, yeah. although some of yeah. them are enduring, sure. and that's sure. what makes Shakespeare's plays so enduring as well. The element, for example, of xenophobia, Agreed. distrust of other human beings, class distinctions. Yeah, uh, We never, never mentioned Gobbo, who's like a little repository of the whole uh, class distinction element. Um, you know, some of those things are True. definitely enduring in, in cultures and make them mm-hmm. the cultures that they are. I tell you what, it was really helpful teaching the teenage boys I was working with about mercantile relationships because it it spoke to them and the idea of, you know, a trophy girlfriend or um, that that kind of shallow view of what relationships are about. And so I... I was quite happy to let you also talk to them about that <laughs> from centuries ago. Did you did you feel like um, any sort of changes of heart occurred? Oh, I wouldn't want to claim that. <laughs> they're they're come really on, like on, they're Sarah kind Jay. of like Teflon. These uh, <laughs> they come in and argue with me for twenty minutes, and then off they go, and they probably forget what I even said. So. I don't. I doubt I had I any know. lasting impact on their lives. But I. I. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Have you ever seen the um, Shakespeare Behind Bars video? A uh, man, a fabulous guy, uh, does uh, Shakespeare in a in a high security prison in Kentucky. And yes. To see these uh, prisoners, hardcore. Wow. I mean, they're lifers. They've brought Shakespeare guy, a Shakespeare guy in to mm. occupy them with Shakespeare. And mm. what happens is that they start to so totally identify with the roles. And uh, there's one, uh, the Tempest, they were working on the Tempest in the, in the, con- in the movie. And one of the prisoners, this fellow, uh, is reciting some of Miranda's lines and he's getting all 
moved and everybody's all moved and there are all these big tough guys sitting around and they're all just as silent and attentive as they could be. And he just bursts out and says, this is me. This is me. This is about me. Mm. And in working with students, Mm. almost universally, when they're working on a Shakespeare monologue, they'll come to that conclusion. I don't know how that happens, but it, it, it gets so entrenched. I mean, okay, you can talk about an actor identifying with a role, but Shakespeare is so rich with what he includes in a monologue that is the underpinning of itself and the revelation of itself. I mean, he doesn't keep any secrets, you know, and he gives it all to you mm. on a silver platter, and it's only for you then to mold it and shape it and make it effective for an audience. But before that, or somewhere in that process, you recognize, this is me. I think that's part of what makes him so enduring. This is me. They use it very effectively in trauma treatment, too. Um, really? Yeah, there's a, uh, it's theater and specifically Shakespeare. To your point, Sparky, about uh, the inmates in high in high max security prisons, they've done a lot of research on the impact of of theater and performance, specifically Shakespeare, on the on the treatment and resolution of trauma, PTSD, um, and childhood developmental trauma, and it's. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that that this man and his work and how it endures over the centuries because it does go to those, you know, that those dividing lines in our souls that ask the question, what is love? What is justice? What is grace? What is mercy? Like, what is my identity? Um, And and you once that language and even just the form of the language the you know does that satisfying couplet or the the rhyme and the way that it feels rolling off your tongue um and the pleasure it takes to take hard language and then memorize it and own it and put it into your self um is it's just transformative it's transformative no matter who you are way of playing a speech is actually just written into the very sounds of the words. And once the actor gets into the music of it Mm. and they can sing it out, uh, it it becomes so personal and so amazing. Mm. I think sometimes when I'm teaching this though, there there is um, a tendency for teenagers to want to just write an essay about themselves and Hamlet becomes irrelevant because Hamlet is me. And I often mm. tell them, no, you're not Hamlet. Sorry. <laughs> you, need to, you, know, you need to respect this character and actually look at what he says yeah. and not just project. Um, so mm. there's, there's also that as well that I think we need to be careful about. Yeah. Boys and, and girls studying Shakespeare for the first time. Um, they're not just, they're not just looking Good in point. a mirror. It's more interesting than that. Is he's better? Yep. No, I think that's true. That's the, that's, I always tell my students, whoever we're studying in this class is smarter than you 100% of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are not Hamlet. So, it's Shakespeare, it's Homer, it's whoever, like they know they're, they're smarter than you. You're not going to find the flaw in Homer. <laughs> right. Right, but I know what you mean. There is there's a, a transcendental um, humanity that mm-hmm. Shakespeare understands, and we all right. get that. And I know what you mean. Yeah, 
That's a beautiful term. Transcendental humanity. It's almost oxymoronic, but I think it does speak to the enduring quality that he has in culture, all culture. I mean, it's, it, it, I always wonder how people in other countries, China, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan, where they, I mean, we know that Shakespeare's done everywhere. Some of them, I'm sure, do it in English, but those who do it in their own language, how? How? Mm. How do you convert this beautiful verse and poetry in the English language to something else? Well, I guess it's the stories, the characters, and the timelessness uh, of Shakespeare that still make his work as attractive to all cultures as uh, it is to English-speaking people. You guys, this is a great place to put a bow on Merchant of Venice. Um, And I'm going to close the show, but after we close the show, we've got a little treat. We've got a recording of a friend of Sparky's, a friend of mine, Joe Cronin, who's done the uh, I Am a Jew speech from Merchant Act 3, Scene 1. And we're going to close with that because it was such a central discussion point in these podcasts. We just really wanted to hear it one more time. And Joe's a delightful actor. He uh, acted at the Ashland, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which for my money has got to be one of the best in the country, if not in the world. And anybody who's acted in Ashland to me has got the chops and Joe's certainly got the chops. So we'll close the show with that. Um, But I do want to thank everyone for listening we are starting to build a pretty sizable back catalog of Shakespeare podcasts, um, including uh, not only Measure for Measure, but we've also done The Tempest, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, Measure. Uh, we haven't done Measure for Measure yet, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, and several others. Uh, we're about to announce, probably in the next two weeks, the upcoming uh, plays that will be podcasting uh, this year. We'll have about five more Shakespeare plays that we'll add to our collection. And our hope is that these will be really valuable to teachers, to students who are just kind of dipping their toe into a play for the first time. That's our hope. Um, But for now, we just want to thank everyone who's been listening for paying such close attention, being such uh, loyal followers uh, and I just want to thank all of you guys. Thanks for coming on the show again. Oh, thanks it's, for having it's us. It's always so much fun. It's always so much fun. Okay. I've enjoyed you so much. Thank you for including me in your club. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Hey, on behalf, I'm Tim McAdesh. On behalf of Sarah Jane Bentley, Heidi White, and Judith Sparky Roberts, thanks so much for joining us and happy reading. To bait fish with oil. If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? 
Hast not a Jew, hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why, revenge. The villainy you teach me I will execute, and it shall go hard. But I will better the instruction. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.